We are in Exodus chapter 7 today. We're continuing to go through the study of this wonderful book. And this morning, we're going to cover the whole chapter. You know, there's a lot of things in this chapter, and I wish we could take time to kind of stop and go more in depth, but I think we'll be able to get a good overview and uh, see what the Lord is teaching us this morning. The title, as you see it on the screen, is Egypt Shall Know That I Am the Lord, and it is chapter 7 where we see that the plagues begin. In your notes, in your outline, you will see that there's a hymn. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, and he titled it The Death of Mercy, and this hymn describes a beautiful picture of the mercy of God in I would sing it for you, but I don't want to ruin your morning, so I'm just going to read the lyrics. The the, uh, hymn says, depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear, the chiefs of sinners spare? Heaven find me on my knees, hear my soul in passion, please. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Now incline me to repent, let me now my sins lament. Deeply my revolt deplore, weep, believe, and sin no more. You know, this is an appropriate hymn that displays the patience and mercy that God had with Moses. God had chosen him to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. and He had promised to be with him, to lead him, to give him the words to say, and he even provided a spokesman. If you remember, that spokesman was who? Was Aaron. Someone who would speak on his behalf, and yet, as we have seen, Moses kept complaining, he kept pushing back to God, saying, God, I don't know if I can do this. I can't speak well, like join the club, right? I can't, I'm not able to lead the nation of Israel. And when we look at this, you know, God could have replaced them, right? He could have. He could have chosen someone else, and yet our merciful God had patience, he had mercy. And in the story today in chapter 7, we see how once again, the Lord sends Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh and provides them with courage and boldness to declare that there's only one true God, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who will rescue his people with many signs and wonders. And this begins today. Those signs and wonders begin today. And as we look at the beginning of chapter 7, we have kind of the same unfortunate verse break that we saw in chapters 5 and 6, because in reality... Chapter 7 really begins in chapter 6, verse 28. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. And so let's begin with point number one. Moses, the mouthpiece for God. In verses 6, 28 of chapter 7, verse 7. And so we're going to begin in these couple of last few verses of chapter 6 with the following a familiar command and response. Look with me in verse 28 of chapter 6. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? And so we see that chapter six closes with God giving a direct command to a discouraged Moses. It appears that he's still not convinced that he is the right person for the task. And once again, we see the same excuse. I'm unskilled in speech. God, I can't talk real well. You know, before in chapter uh, four, he complained. He says, God, I don't know if the people are going to listen to me. And now here he says, well, I don't know if Pharaoh's going to listen to me. How is he going to believe me? And here, once again, you know, Moses is pushing back. But as someone wrote, you know, for a man who complained that he couldn't speak, he sure had a lot to say, right? Yeah. It appears that Moses, as, at the end of the chapter 6, is making a last-ditch effort to get, a, get out of being the one who would lead the, the nation out of Israel. It's like in football, right? In football, when a team is down, like, by five points and you have one last play to go, you're going to throw that ball to the end zone. What is that called? A Hail Mary, right? This is a last-ditch effort. He's going to try and make it. It appears like Moses is trying to do this, but it doesn't work, right? We know that. It doesn't work because God had already preordained that he would be the person to lead the nation out of Egypt. Then we move into chapter 7, and we see that Moses is given authority in verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And here at verse 1, God responds to Moses, reminding him of the authority that he will be given. In other words, he says, I'm going to make you, I will make you God to Pharaoh. And Moses uses this word, God here, Elohim, to describe himself as God's representative on earth. So God is going to speak through him. It's a similar word that we see in Psalm 82, 1, where the psalmist Asaph says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. In other words, God is going to be in the midst of them, with them, observing, hearing. And so here in the text, when Moses speaks to Pharaoh, it's as if God is speaking. He God gives Moses that type of authority. And so Moses, as God, goes before Pharaoh with his own prophet Aaron, who's going to do all the talking. Now, what is that about? So you've got God speaking to Moses. Moses speaks to Aaron. Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. What is that? Why, is that? Why can't Moses speak directly to Pharaoh? What's for a reason? Because it's an established order, right? It's an established order of authority. Moses says that he, or God says that he's not, he's not going to speak directly to Pharaoh. We see that in verse 2. Look with me. He's, God says, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh 
that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. Why is that? Well, Pharaoh would have recognized this level of authority because that was his own practice. You see, remember, you know, in chapters past, we've seen that the people saw Pharaoh as a divine being. He had authority, right? So in essence, he wasn't the one who would speak directly to the people. He had his people to do the talking for him. And so when Moses comes before Pharaoh with his own spokesman, with his own prophet, now in a sense they're both in par, right? And Pharaoh recognized that authority. And so so when Moses spoke to him through Aaron, Pharaoh would have recognized that Moses is now claiming to have authority, divine authority. But did you notice in in verse 1 that Moses is not given a choice of what to say? He didn't, right? He is to speak what? All that I command you. I love that. He is to speak only what God commands. And I was thinking about this. I mean, isn't that the same command we have today? It is, right? For anyone who teaches God's word at any level, isn't that what the command is today? Yes. Right? 2 Timothy 4.3, preach the word. 2 Timothy 1.13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. 1 Corinthians 4.6, do not exceed what is written. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. 1 Peter 4.11, just saying. Isn't that amazing? And so like Moses, we have been commanded by God to speak only what he has instructed us in his word. We don't have the right to change it or to say what we want. Isn't that what we hear in a lot of churches, sadly, right? It's man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. Here Moses, God tells Moses, you ought to speak all that I command you. I will give you the words. Moses is to speak with authority because the words he speaks are from God himself. Then in verses 3 to 5, we see the deliverance of God's people will begin by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. How is this going to happen? Well, let's look at point C. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verses 3 to 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That I, might, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel the, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Guess where I got the title? Yes, from here. He says, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now, I want you to notice with me that that Moses describes the mighty acts that he's going to do. Look at the key words in verse 3. I will harden. I may multiply my signs, my wonders. Verse 4. I will lay my hand and bring out my hosts, my people. 
You know, it's similar to what we read in Deuteronomy 26, verse 8, where it says, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with, a great, with great terror, with signs and wonders. We also see a, a picture of this in 2 Kings 17, verse 36. But the Lord who brought up you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. See, there's that authority, right? And so the words here in verses 3 to 5 in chapter 7 provide a preview of what is to come. You remember back in chapter 6 in verse 30, Moses said, how in the world is Pharaoh going to believe me? You know what the answer is? He's not, right? He's not. He's not going to listen to you. Why? Because I'm going to harden his heart. See God's sovereignty there, right? You know, there's some who try to pin Pharaoh's disobedience on God as, as if it was his fault. You know, after all, they say, well, it was God who hardened his heart. That's why he's acting the, that way. Is that true? No, of course not. Is God an accomplice of Pharaoh's re rebellion and sin? No, of course not. You know, in a certain way, some would kind of think about that and say, hmm, that is kind of strange. I mean, is that true? No. No, because we know from Scripture the depravity of the human heart, right? Was Pharaoh a good guy? No, he wasn't. I mean, he was a picture of Romans 3, right? 10 to 18. There's none righteous, not even one, none who understands None who seeks for God. He turned aside. He has become useless. He's no, there's none who does good. There's not even one and so on. Pharaoh was like this. We were all like this, right? Before the Lord saved us. Isn't that true? How many of us really looked for God before he saved us? None of us. None of us. So this describes Pharaoh. You know, we must not think that Pharaoh was some kind of nice guy and that God changed him to be really bad. No, he was depraved. Pharaoh was a wicked, evil man. And no matter what Moses said, he was not going to listen. So one would say, all right, so... How do you reconcile the verse that says, where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart with Pharaoh hardened his heart? How do you reconcile that? Well, the same way we reconcile Romans 9, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. How do you explain that? That's a great question. And I'm going to direct you to Tom's messages from Romans 9. And we'll get into it whenever, if we, if we ever teach on the attributes of God. Is this a punt? Yes. Yeah, because we have to continue. But we know the purpose behind Pharaoh's response and hardening, right? It was so that God will multiply his signs. This was all God's plan. 
And we're going to see his signs, his wonders, and he's going to lay his hand on, on Egypt so that he would bring out his host, my people. And what we see here, brothers, is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan to rescue his people from bondage. That's what we see. And for him to receive the glory. You know, I can assure you that Moses at this point didn't understand the purpose behind the statement that God would harden Pharaoh's heart because after all, he was so focused on whether Pharaoh was going to listen to him, right? But then we have this incredible statement. Point C, a D. Moses obeys God's command. And you might be thinking, what's so big about that? It's big. Look at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. What's, what's amazing about that? Before this, what was Moses doing? He was pushing back, right? But God, they might not listen to me. I'm not the right guy. I'm, I can't speak well. But all of a sudden, there is a change. There is a transition to where now Moses, we would say, is on board. He's not complaining anymore. Did you notice that? We don't know how much time has passed since the end of chapter 6 to 7, though it appears that this is a turning point in the life of Moses. We don't see any pushback. He just obeyed. You know, it's a beautiful picture, as we heard this morning, of humility and obedience. Isn't that neat? Moses now is to go before Pharaoh with authority and not back down. He's not to back down. Why do I say that? Well, if you remember back in chapter 5, he did back down. You know, he, in chapter 5, for the first couple of verses, he went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, um, let us go celebrate a feast let us go three days out, okay, to, to celebrate, to, to sacrifice. Otherwise, God is going to punish us. That wasn't the message. He is to demand and command from Pharaoh, and he did. It's like a different man, right? He's got authority, and we see boldness. And that's what he does. He goes before Pharaoh to demand and command, let my people go. After all, God is speaking through him, right? This is the message from God, not from Moses. But before we go to the next point, I want you to notice something very interesting in verse 7. Moses, he records his age. He says, Moses was 80 years old, Aaron, 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. We're not sure why Moses writes down his age in Aaron's age, though, you know, some say that he was thinking that he was not going to live past 80. You know, we saw that in Psalm 90, verse 10, when he says, you know, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Why is that important? Well, in a certain way, we can relate with Moses because, you know, the older we get, the more we might be inclined to think that our years are behind us. 
As we get older, we say, well, I mean, how do we help? What do we do? You know, there's not a whole lot to do anymore. But is that true for a Christian? Well, let's look at the life of Moses. The text says that he was 80 when he went before Pharaoh. Would you know that that was just the beginning of his task? 80. Wow, right? I don't know if I'll make it to 80, right? But think about this. Moses lived another 40 years of faithful service. Isn't that amazing? He lived 120 years and he proved to be faithful to the end. He wasn't perfect. He was faithful. And as we saw this morning, he was humble and faithful. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love this about our God. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He expects us to be faithful. Oh, that we would be like this, right? To be faithful. You know, no matter our age, whether we are young or young at heart, you know, we are to serve the Lord faithfully as long as we live. Then we get to point number two. Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And the first thing we see here is that God turns Aaron's Aaron's staff into a serpent. Look at verses 8 to 10 with me. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and they did, it's another beautiful statement here of obedience, they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. You know, God, of course, knowing the heart of man, knows what Pharaoh is going to do. He's going to challenge Moses' authority, and he's going to ask for a miracle. So when you go before Pharaoh, God says to Moses and Aaron, I want you to throw your staff down so that it'll become a serpent. We saw this, right, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It's the same sign. And like in chapter 4, there is a question as to what kind of snake this was. But regardless of the type of serpent, One thing is clear. In Egyptian culture, the serpent was the symbol of Pharaoh's authority. And when the staff becomes a serpent, it was a direct attack at Pharaoh's authority and their belief system. You see, this is all on purpose. Because we see, and Pharaoh recognized this, by the way. Because we, he noticed that, and we see that in, in point number two, God's power versus Pharaoh's defiance, verses 11 to 13. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men, the sorcerers, and also the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same with, they seek, with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we see that Pharaoh called in for backup. He called in his wise men, his sorcerers, magicians. Who are these people? You know, these are false religious leaders who practice sorcery or magic. They were highly skilled 
at doing all this and could supposedly cast spells to control people and other gods. In the text, we read that Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to duplicate what Aaron did with their secret arts. What is that? What does this mean? You know, some write this was kind of a clever illusion, a clever trick they often used. After all, you know, snake charming is popular in that part of the world. And as a Bible scholar notes, this is still very popular today. And he says, uh, the Bible scholar Ernst Hengstenberg says he witnessed a snake charmers do a procedure called catalepsy, where they make the snake freeze up and become stiff. He says that this practice is still done today where a cobra can be paralyzed by putting pressure on a nerve in, uh, in its neck and at a distance, the snake can be mistaken for a cane. Though when the charmer throws it down on the ground, the jolt causes it to recover and crawl away. Is that what it was? Eh, this is possible. Though when, you know, when we read about secret arts, it's probably more than that, right? It's more like demonic activity. After all, John 12, 31 reminds us that Satan is the ruler of this world and he's able to do this type of stuff to enslave people with false gods and false religions. But you notice that one of the things that they could only do was mimic what Aaron was doing. That's all they could do. And the truth is that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, according to John 8, 44, and he can only mimic and corrupt what God does. He cannot create he can only mimic and corrupt. That's why we see all sorts of counterfeits out there, right? Even in the church, sadly. But we must remember, brothers, that the devil is not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. The devil only does what God allows him to do. And, you know, that a lot of the commentaries say that this was probably involved with satanic, demonic activity when he does all this. And so the sorcerers and magicians try to impress Aaron, but look at verse 12. It says, for each one threw his staff and they turned into a serpent. But what happens? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Can you picture the magicians, all these people, the wise men, the sorcerers, Pharaoh, they're gathered around making all these magic tricks, right? Proudly thinking that they have matched what Aaron was doing. And to their surprise, a couple of gulps and their staffs were gone. With this miracle, you know, God is showing Pharaoh that their sorcery was useless and that all power all authority uh, belonged to who? To God himself. Right? To Yahweh. And even the magicians recognized this. You know, uh, if, in chapter 8, verse 19, you know, they said, you know, this is the finger of God. They recognized it. They knew firsthand that they were facing someone more powerful than them. This was no magic trick. This was a miracle. Yet, look at verse 13. What does it say? 
Yet, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Yet, this word describes an attitude that is unyielding and firm, not going to move. He's not going to budge. The word hardened is in a perfect tense. It doesn't mean that Pharaoh's heart was slowly becoming hard. It was already hardened. But this is not new, right? Because God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And once again, you know, this is one of the big mysteries of the sovereignty of God. But it's also a picture of Romans 1, right? He gave them over to their own depravity. And we look at this, and this is really a warning to anyone who has witnessed the kindness and goodness of the Lord, but refuses to repent. Right? And then we go to point number three, the first sign and wonder. What is that? Water is turned into blood. And we see that God's plan to rescue his people begins with the first of the ten plagues. Ever question, ever question why ten? Why ten? Why not seven or nine or one? Why 10? I like that the way that James Montgomery Boyce explains this. It's kind of a, a long um, quote here, but I, I think it's very helpful to understand what's going on here. You can say, oh, geez, how long are we going to be here? I like this, but read with me. In order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were, they were directed against the gods and the goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. Yes. There were, there were about 80 major deities in Egypt. It's like, how do you keep track of this, right? Sheesh. All clustered about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle follow the three-fours pattern. The, two, the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. The final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. You see what God is doing, right? He wants to make sure that All Egypt knows that there is one true God. All the other gods are what? False. And from here on, all the way to chapter 11, we see that God is going to strike Egypt with ten mighty blows directed at the Egyptian religious system, including their false gods, to show once again that there is only one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so we begin Let's begin. Moses confronts Pharaoh. Here he comes, right? Look at Exodus 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him in the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, 
you have not listened until now. So Moses is to go before a stubborn Pharaoh who's not going to listen and command him to let the people go. You know, Pharaoh thinks he's in control. He's not in control. In verse 15, God instructs Moses when, where, and when to meet Pharaoh. So if you're tracking with me, this is a picture of God's omniscience, right? What is God's omniscience? God possesses all knowledge, knowing all there is to know, whether actual or possible. Psalm 139. Where did I get that? From the partner's book, right? So if you have one, that's where it is. So if you, if you look at this, God knows what Pharaoh does because he's all-knowing. So he says, Moses, Pharaoh's going to be by the Nile in the morning. The question is, what is he doing in the morning by the Nile? Is he like doing his morning routine, taking a bath early in the morning? I mean, it could be, right? In Exodus 2, chapter 5, his daughters did that, and that's when they found out about Moses. Remember that? Probably not. Most likely, he went on to worship the Nile god named Happy, H-A-P-I, the god of the flood, which, by the way, is portrayed as a bearded man with female breasts and the pregnant stomach. That's pretty gross. It's almost a picture of the people we see walking around these days. Right? Whew. Or perhaps he went to give thanks to the god Kunum, the guardian of the Nile. And so what we see here is a picture of pantheism where they worship all sorts of gods. I mean, I'm, again, I'm just trying to think of like, how do you keep track of who to worship? There's so many of them. But regardless, Moses goes before Pharaoh and issues a, a non-negotiable command. Let my people go. God is not going to accept a no for an answer. He's not going to accept a counter offer because his plan is to rescue Israel, because that is his plan, right? It's a picture of what we see in Psalm 33, 11, right? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. His established plan to rescue Israel is not going to change. It's going to move on as he has planned it. So why does he want Israel to go? So they may worship him so they may worship him we see that in the text Israel was chosen to worship Yahweh not Pharaoh not the Egyptians not their gods and so what we have here Israel is enslaved against their will and being made to worship Pharaoh and therefore God says no let my people go so they may worship me and so we have And point B, God delivers the first plague. As we see that, of course, Pharaoh is not going to listen. Exodus 17, verse 17, 717. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die. The Nile will become foul. The Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. So Moses here again, speaking on behalf of God, says, thus says the Lord. There's that authority. 
Pharaoh, you are stubborn. You won't listen. You have hardened your heart. You refuse to acknowledge the true God of Israel. You're now going to find out who the real God is. And here, Moses uses God's personal name, Yahweh, Lord. You know, we see a similar picture of this type of warning in Isaiah chapter 43, which, by the way, this is right before God destroys Babylon. I, this, this is a few verses, so bear with me, okay? Isaiah 43, chapter 10, uh, verses 10 to 13. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there, is, there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. If even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Who's going to reverse the plagues? Nobody, right? God is going to make himself known to Pharaoh and all Egypt. How? He's going to strike one of their main sources, right, of life. You know what that is? The Nile. The Nile. He's going to show them that only he has the power to control the elements, not their false gods. So what is this going to affect? Their food? Their source of water, their crops. So much for happy, right? Not so happy anymore. So turning water into blood is the first sign that Yahweh God uses to show that there's only one God. And so it happened. Look, for, look at verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters. Now look at the repeated word over. This is intentional. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, over their pools, over their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. You know what that is? God is covering everything. It's a bloody mess, right, if you think about it. You know, contrary to some, what some uh, skeptics say, this was not an isolated area where the water was turned into blood. It says that all this was in all the land of Egypt. Look at verse 20 and 21. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile. And then we have in the side of who? Pharaoh in the side of servants and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died. The Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile and the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. And so it happened. 
It's what happens when you disobey God, right? Judgment. And so we see that Pharaoh lifted up, he lifted his staff and struck the water in the sight of everyone, Pharaoh, his servants, so that everyone will see, so that everyone would know what's going on. But you know, some have questioned the reality of the plagues in Egypt. Some even claim that they never happened. Others say that they were kind of symbolic inventions. Ah, just symbolic. It wasn't true. You know, but when it comes to the water being turned into blood, there are some who try to explain it. I'm sure you know. You probably watch the History Channel, right? They say that it wasn't real blood. It just resembled blood. Others say that, you know, heavy rains in southern Egypt washed the red soil into the Nile Delta and perhaps the river with the red sediment from seasonal floods. The sediment led into oxygen imbalance, which would account for the river stench. Perhaps the Nile covered with the bloom, reddish algae inundated with microorganisms. Like, what? What in the world is that? Right? That's nonsense. Nonsense. What are the evidences in the Bible, that this is true. I think they're in your outline. There's several. Evidence number one. The text says God turned the water into blood, not a red color, right? In the Hebrew, blood is different than the red, right? Evidence number two. The water was turned into blood immediately when Moses told Aaron to strike the water in his staff. There's no mention of the rising or flooding, right? Evidence number three, all the water was not drinkable. Evidence number four, the miracle lasted seven days, not the entire flood season. Evidence number five, all the fish in the river died. This did not happen when silt ran into the river. Evidence number six, that in Scripture, we see that God has turned water into something else. Of course, we see water into blood, and we also see in John 2, water into wine. Evidence number seven, this miracle would have been meaningless to Pharaoh if this happened every time there, was, there were heavy rains, right? He wouldn't have bothered to call his magicians. I'm sure he would have said, we see this all the time. Boring, right? But this was a real event. And God delivered the first blow to Egypt to show that he is Lord. Like what Psalm 78, 44 says, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, and, and he turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. Psalm 105, 29 he turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. I like what Phil, Phil Bryken says about this. He says that, um, oh, that's the wrong one. He says, with one single blow, he gave, he gave them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, in a spiritual crisis. Yeah, one single blow. You know what that's called? A pandemic, right? And I'm sure they were not concerned about toilet paper, right? So what happened to their gods, right? Egypt was so dependent on their gods and with one act, the one true God crumbles all 
their fake gods to nothing. Did you know that God is still displaying similar power today? Not turning the water into blood, but we still have floods. We have hurricanes. We have earthquakes, storms, tornadoes, fires. God allows all these things to happen today. You know, and what is the lesson behind it? The lesson is that we should turn to him instead of focusing on like material things and other people turn to their gods, right? Oh, let's pray that God would make, you know, people's heart tender to his word and his will so that when they go through a disaster, they would turn to Christ in repentance and faith and not trust in themselves. Well, so what happens when all this, you would think that Pharaoh would say, oh my goodness, I'm dealing with something big here, right? But that's not what happens. We see, um, oh, there it is. I don't know how. God delivers the first plague. I love this. The callousness of a hardened heart. That's point number four. The callousness of a hardened heart. And what we see here in verse 22 and 23, look with me. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. That's amazing. That is amazing. And in verse 22, once again, we have Pharaoh calling his magicians to to come and imitate what Moses and Aaron are doing. And it says here they, they did with their secret art. The question is, where do they get the water, right? What's going on here? Well, the irony here is that instead of making things better and Listen to this. Instead of these guys, the sorcerers, the magicians making things better, they're making things worse, right? Why? Because they're doing the same thing. They're mimicking Aaron. You would think that if they're going to do something great, they would turn the blood back into water, right? But they don't because they can't. They don't have the ability to undo God's miracle. Philip Ryken says, What this shows is that Satan's power is self-defeating. Even his counterfeit signs and wonders ultimately serve the greater glory of God. And that is true. And so when Pharaoh sees that the magicians were able to duplicate the sign or mimic the sign, he says, well, you know, he looked at it and says, he turned, went into his house, no concern even for this. Wow. Here's a picture of a callous, hardened heart. This is a manifestation of selfishness and arrogance. You know, we have a picture of a person who has no concern for people, right? He just doesn't care. It's all about him. How many of you know people like this? Don't raise your hand. I think we all do. But you know what? The truth is, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 11, such were some 
of you and me, right? Right? But then Paul says, but you were washed. You were cleansed. God saved us. God rescued us from being like this. Oh, that God would have mercy on people who are like this. You know, but we've gone through and we've seen all the negative stuff that is going on, how God is judging the nation of Egypt. I don't want to end on a negative note. I want to end on a good note. And point number five, we see this. We see the compassion and mercy of God. I want you to look with me in verse 24. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. You may be thinking, how is that a good note? (laughs) How is that a good note? Well, while this is a picture of, of false religion, where people are fending for themselves because their false gods and idols has failed them, and that is true, this is also a picture of a compassionate and merciful God. Do you know that? I mean, God could have converted even the water around the Nile to blood, and many people would have died. You know, but instead, he provided an option for the people to dig around the Nile and get waters so they wouldn't die. After all, how long is this going to last? Seven days. How long can a person last without drinking water? Three days. We have a picture of a compassionate God, right? I love what Psalm 103.8 says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger and abundant, abounding in loving kindness. You know, in another demonstration of his mercy and grace, God turned the blood back to water after seven days. That's another picture of his grace. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And they found out in judgment, right, Egypt. But they also saw a demonstration of God's amazing mercy and grace. Don't we serve a wonderful God, an amazing God, who rescued us out of the domain of darkness, says Paul, and transferred us into his marvelous light? Amen, right? That we are not blind to idolatry anymore, but we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We know God, Yahweh, the true God, and praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of your grace. Thank you also for just allowing us to see, Lord, that you do punish disobedience. But at the same time, Father, we know that you are a merciful God and those who will turn to you, you will forgive. Oh, Father, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, that he may turn to you and know you, the true God, the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. In his name I pray. Amen.